everybody, and welcome back to Opera Off Stage. I'm Jesse, and I'm Michelle, and today we are doing a mini sode. Hooray! Yeah, we got a lot going on this week, so we thought we'd do something a little funner, a little lighter. And today we're going to talk a little bit about crazy collaborations between performers you wouldn't expect, with a little dash of a rant about John Williams <laughs> at the end. You guys. Because, like, we've got some stuff to say. We have so much to say about Dear Johnny. Love. Big fan. (laughs) We'll save it for the episode. Last weekend was Mother's Day weekend, so we hope you all had a great time. And if you are a mom, happy belated Mother's Day. But like we said, this is a mini-sode. And mini-sodes are usually Patreon-exclusive content. But today we're going to share this one with you guys, just so you can kind of see what it's about. But our other mini-sodes have quite the range of topics, including every Amanda Bynes movie ranked and reimagined as an opera, Michelle and I talking about the music that changed our lives and got us into what we do now, (laughs) we have an episode about are singers bad at rhythm or are modern composers just mean? The answer may surprise you. (laughs) And my personal favorite title, is Eric Whitaker hot or is he the only living choral composer you know? We we asked some hard-hitting questions (laughs) on our mini-sodes, you guys, so... Truly, we we get to the the depths of, like, you know, what 2000s movies work as operas and (laughs) whether or not Eric Whitaker is actually hot. Yeah, so if these questions leave you up at night like they do for us, uh, you can gain access to our weekly mini-sodes for as little as $2 a month on our Patreon. So, without further ado, we're talking about who the heck performed with who. And, Jesse, what example do you have for us first? This is actually a fun one because this was actually suggested to us, this this pairing was actually told to us by someone on our Patreon. Whoop, whoop. The first one is Montserrat Caballé and Freddie Mercury, who worked together on an album entitled Barcelona. I love it. I love this pairing more than anything. I I had no clue that this was a thing that had happened, which was weird. I felt like I should have known when they told us, and I had no clue about it. But uh, the original premise behind this was that they would perform together at the Olympics, in Spain, which is the home country of Montserrat Caballé. And of course, Freddie Mercury Queen was huge, huge, huge at the time. But beyond just having worked together on that and making this crazy music video and performing, they adored each other. Truly, like, they were diva soulmates. (laughs) Yes. They just carried so much of the same energy in different areas of music. There is actually a quote from Freddie Mercury where he's talking about Montserrat Caballé. He says, I love music and she is the music. Which, like... I'm blushing. Like, I... If somebody said that to me, like, I would I would die. My soul would leave my body. I would, if Freddie Mercury said that about me, I would never sing again because I don't need to prove anything to anyone else. At that point, right? your career is over because, like, you already accomplished everything that you could ever accomplish. Oh, yeah. So a lot of what I'm about to talk about comes from an article about this topic on NME.com, and it's written by John Earls. Just giving credit where credit is due, because I'm going to pull a lot of direct quotes. So (laughs) this is my favorite quote directly from this article, because John Earls, the guy who wrote the article, clearly feels some kind of way about the album. (laughs) This is... This is the quote. Released in 1988, their joint album, Barcelona, remains the only great classical crossover moment. Oh? That, yeah. John Earls is like, there's nothing that will ever be as good 
ever again. That is the beginning and end of classical crossover. This man is like, listen, guys, I've been around the block. I've listened to every single collaboration and nothing at all will ever top this. And, you know, right. I'm not going to say he's right, but like he's got a point. Yeah. So Peter Freestone, who was Freddie Mercury's personal assistant, he takes Freddie to Royal Opera House to hear Pavarotti. But as soon as Montserrat starts to sing, Freddie couldn't think of anyone else. Couldn't care less about Pavarotti being there. And he started going to more and more of her concerts in New York. But originally he didn't want to meet her because he didn't want his like image of her to be damaged. You know, never meet your heroes. The classic. Mm -hmm. And he kind of liked, in the same way that people viewed him as this huge rock star, he liked viewing her as just this grand opera diva. David Mallet, who was their video director for Barcelona, also said, like, I think he he thought Freddie was a little bit afraid of being snubbed. And, like, imagine snubbing Freddie Mercury once again. Imagine. At the height of his fame, because this is right, right around this time, this is about, this is around the time and in the time where he was being diagnosed with AIDS. Mm. So, like, truly still at the height of his career. Mm -hmm. He was so nervous about meeting her when they decided they would do the song for the Olympics that he showed up five minutes early when typically he would show up 15 minutes late. Ah. And when Montserrat was four minutes late for the meeting, he was like, she doesn't want to be here. She doesn't want to come. She doesn't care. This was a mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And Montserrat said of their first meeting that she was excited that his hand was colder than hers because it meant that he was more nervous than she was because she was also terrified. You know, this grand rock star. (laughs) I love this so much. So there's just these two huge divas who are super nervous about meeting each other and are just so, who admire each other so, so much and have so much respect for each other. And Freddie Mercury thought they were just going to make the one song for the Olympics. But Montserrat, while they're working on it, says, how many songs do you put on a rock album? Freddie said, like, usually about, you know, eight or ten songs. And she goes, fine, we'll do an album. I love this. <laughs> and and Freddie Mercury freaked out. But then they were like, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to make a whole album. Right. And so Montserrat would stay in Freddie Mercury's home and they would stay up until like 4 a.m. with the producer and they would just be jamming. They would just be riffing off of each other. These two grand voices. And it said that like Montserrat was taking a cigarette and was started smoking and Freddie Mercury freaked out because he loves her voice. And he's like, how could you do that to your voice, even though they're his cigarettes? And he was like, how can you do that? You're going to destroy your voice. And they were like, it it wouldn't have mattered, really, because she'd already drunk two bottles of champagne. (laughs) So David Mallet says about them, she's like, she was just as much of a maniac as Freddie. And that you don't really think about opera singers that way. But like Montserrat was like really kind of rock and roll. And he said, so David Mallet, the video producer again, says, my favorite memory of them was at 3 a.m. in a hotel somewhere. They just drunk God knows how much. And they were just falling over each other adoring one another i love them and even when they talk about them doing the actual video for barcelona they were talking about how freddie mercury had kind of pulled back on stage now if you've ever seen videos of freddie mercury performing he's all over the place he's a great showman like that's part of what made him so cool to watch but when he saw how much of the stage and how much energy that montserrat was putting in he suddenly stepped it back up to like a hundred. But these were just two people who absolutely adored. If you, you should go online, go on YouTube and watch videos of them talking about each other because they truly loved one another, like deeply and truly. You should just look up a picture of them. These two were genuinely the biggest simps for one another in the best way. Like they were so, they clicked 
so well. They were just like so enamored, so in love with each other. It's the purest thing. And and listening and watching videos of them talking about one another, like that is the collaborative spirit that every artist dreams to have and share with another person. And the fact that it's between these two powerhouses and their own unique genres is just it brings me so much joy. There was one more thing that I just thought was really interesting. So while they're recording Barcelona, the full album, when they were doing one of the parts of the recording, so Freddie Mercury didn't know how to make his voice quieter. Like, he didn't know how to do a pianissimo well. Amazing. So when he watched Montserrat Caballé do it, like, just right then and there, like, he was so in awe of that. And meanwhile, she was listening to him while he was doing kind of a spoken word portion, and she said, why am I even here screaming away? Why can't we just leave his recitation of the lyrics because it's way more beautiful than anything I can do. Like, these two people just well and truly respected and loved each other so, so deeply. But once again, that quote, I love music and she is the music. I could die. (laughs) Goodbye. But I love that. Like, it it makes me so incredibly happy. And also to think of, like, someone as, like, as incredible as Freddie Mercury was, like, his deep appreciation for what she did, even though it's so different. There you go. One of my favorites. And thank you to our Patreon supporter who brought that to our attention and brought my attention to the documentary on it. So dreamy. I love it. So cute. A little match made in heaven. That is definitely one of my all-time favorite collaborations. Not even just like, ooh, this is such a funny collaboration. Look at these two. Like, just in general. It's so amazing. I love them so, so dearly. Another collaboration that I had no idea existed, and now I need to go listen to this album is you know we all know good old composer Nico Muli, right we've all seen Marnie we did it for a, an opera watch party it's he's such a great composer it's so good so good I know I was so jazzed when we watched Marnie it was so much better than I would have expected and I already had high hopes for it but you want to know who this man collaborated with is dear dear Sufjan Stevens <laughs> I'm sorry. And this genuinely blew my mind. And not only did he collaborate on an album with Sufi, you know, we love him, but he collaborated with drummer James McAllister and guitarist slash composer Bryce Desner of The National. What? Which is just, isn't that so bizarre? There's so much happening. So much happening. Like Nico Muli, somebody whose freaking operas are performed and commissioned by the Met. I personally, like, I like Sufjan Stevens, but I don't think I fully understand this person. (laughs) Sufjan Stevens is an enigma. Complete enigma. And then you have James McAllister and then the guitarist from The National? Like, excuse me? Super random. But they collaborated on this album called Planetarium, and it was released in... 2017 and there's like an NPR article covering their collaboration and like they talk about it like it's such high art which I really enjoy (laughs) and you should definitely check it out but I just love that I guess that makes sense too and I do want to see like more modern composers working with like singer songwriters like I like that as a project it's just still baffling yeah no it's very funny Yeah, I'll have to check it out. I actually haven't listened to that one yet. I like it because NPR describes it as an existential song cycle. That sounds right for both of them. That confronts both the heavens and the human condition in a marriage of hypnotic sound and song. And that's what I mean by like... I hope you know I'm going to put that in my phone, but I am going to change my Instagram description to existential song cycle. Right, isn't that so good? Like, I this it gives me the same vibe. It's a mood. 
It gives me the same vibes as people who like live to hype up Wagner operas. Like same thing, same exact energy, and I love it. Same exact moment. <laughs> so this one's a shorty but a goodie. If you had to guess, Michelle, if I told you that Hans Zimmer, a well-known film composer, worked on a ton of films: Sherlock Holmes, Batman, Pirates of the Caribbean. The list goes on and on and on. And Jacob Collier. Really impressive multi-instrumentalist, <laughs> very wild composer, had worked together on a project. What, what might you think it is? Don't worry. I don't need your answer because it is, you simply would not guess that it would be classic, well-known film Boss Baby. <laughs> that's, that's what happened. Like, what on, listen. I'm so sorry. You mean the cinematic masterpiece that is Boss Baby? <laughs> The cinematic masterpiece. Best picture winning. <laughs> no. Did Boss Baby... Do you think Boss Baby won any awards? I actually don't know. I do not. I, I think not. Oh, I mean, it won some, some small films. Or small awards. What, like Kids' Choice Awards? <laughs> they got nominated for a lot of stuff. It was nominated for Best Animated Feature in 2018. And what? Did it lose to Disney? As per usual. No, it lost a Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. <gasps> okay, side note, that is such oh, a Oh, I'm good sorry. Film. No, it didn't. That's the wrong year. Oh, no, even better. It lost to Coco. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, duh. Coco is amazing. Once again, as it should. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. There's something... First of all, there's something weird about Hans Zimmer writing the soundtrack for Boss Baby anyway. <laughs> But also, yeah. to be like, you know what the first time I want I collaborate with Jacob Collier to be? Boss Baby. <laughs> yeah, like, who worked out that contract? Was that just kind of an, an, an empty season for the both of them? And they, those two working on Boss Baby is the exact same thing as going on a blind date. Like, <laughs> and I will not be convinced otherwise. Like that's a that's a great like trivia question because no one's ever gonna guess Boss Baby. Not a single person on this planet is gonna guess Boss Baby. No, not a single soul would ever see that coming. I'm trying to see if they've ever collaborated again. <laughs> no, as far as I can tell, they have not collaborated since. A one and done. A Boss Baby and done. Yeah, no, that's the only time, as far as I can see, that they have worked. What? What? Of all the things to have done. I really love that for them, though. I love that. You know what? That must have been an interesting bonding experience. What an air of mystery they've got going there. But yeah, that's that's a shorty, but a goodie. Now I need to go back and watch Boss Baby with that in mind. I actually haven't seen Boss Baby. It's fine. And the whole reason I didn't see Boss Baby was because of how annoying and how seemingly like the marketing for that was everywhere. I was like, why in the middle of downtown LA do we have bus stops and like chairs decked out with this boss baby <laughs> to make it make sense? It is a perfectly okay movie. That's what I expect. But two great composers, singer, songwriter. It's better than you expect it to be, but it's it's not necessarily like a good, good movie. It's just, it seems good because it's better than you thought it would be. But it doesn't stand up against Coco. Oh, absolutely you know, not. Not many things do. In my opinion. But uh, <laughs> uh, let's just do a mini-sode where I talk about how I cried during every single Pixar movie that's ever been released. <laughs> awesome. Let me talk about wh where in each Pixar film I've been emotionally <laughs> crippled. Oh, gosh. 
Oh my gosh. If you guys, I will say this because we've, once again, I can do what I want because it's a mini-sode. If you guys haven't seen Soul yet, first of all, if you're in a bad place, do not. But Do not. Do not. It, it's a journey. But <laughs> it, it will hurt truly, you. I will not, I will not spoil anything. But the fact that Pixar took on this particular topic is just insane to me. And they do such a good job with it, which they always do. But I feel like every single Pixar movie I see now is like a slightly deeper therapy session. Absolutely. Oh. Pixar has, their niche has become, hmm, let's, <laughs> let's come up with these fun characters that kids will want to see in theaters, but also unpack the childhood trauma of their parents at the same time. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, that's true. When, as you rewatch, like I know if I rewatched Up right now, the way I would view it, even though that the first 10 minutes of Up has always made me cry. I can't not cry when I watch the first 10 minutes of Up. But now it would be so much worse. It's going to be so much worse the next time I see that movie. Yeah. Even even Wally hits so much differently. <laughs> Wally hits different, Jesse. <laughs> well, not not to be weird, but like post-pandemic, like having yeah. spent all of that time inside, kind of isolated, just trying to entertain yourself. Yeah, Wally would mess me up really badly right now. Any any Pixar film messes me up, but we love it. We love it. Yeah, and then Inside Out would come for me for not appropriately dealing with my emotions. <laughs> but anyway, Soul is very much like, it's not specifically about musicians, but the main character is a musician. So it does, it hits different. <laughs> it's it's good. And you should watch it if you haven't. You should absolutely. Let's, let's do that as our next opera watch party. <laughs> <laughs> opera watch party. It's therapy time, everybody. <laughs> oh goodness but coming off of Hans Zimmer and Collier is our other true love Sir Johnny Williams <laughs> Sir John Williams himself and and Sophie Mutter they actually came out oh. with an album together yeah rethinking basically John Williams most famous works and specifically for that album they they focus on Harry Potter Star Wars memoirs of a geisha and one of those things is not like the other yeah, totally. A little <laughs> bit different, isn't it? But yeah, it's it's so interesting. And they actually have such a cute backstory. I don't think that this is necessarily like the craziest collaboration ever, but their little origin story of their relationship is absolutely hilarious. So Mutter met Williams at Tanglewood and <laughs> where everyone meets as, as where everyone meets and very politely begged him to write a piece for her which first of all can you even Same. imagine the monstrous sized balls this person has to have to go up to john williams and be like can you write a piece for me can you imagine no <laughs> i would be in the grave before i had the uh, like gall the audacity to even breathe the same air as this man but she said can you write 10 bars 10 me measures of music that's all you have to do just a little portrait and that's what he remembers her telling him and John Williams says that, you know, the summer ended and Christmas came and a box of Christmas cookies arrived from Germany from Anne-Sophie. And I thought, oh, my God, I have to make 10 bars of something for this lady. And he says, she's many things, but one thing she is not is a woman you can say no to. And the 10 bars became 140 bars or so in a piece I call Markings. And wow, yeah, I just think it's so funny. So later they're getting dinner. And Mutter suggests that they do a whole new album of different arrangements of Williams' famous movie things 
themes for solo violin and orchestra. And if you don't know who Anne-Sophie Mutter is, she's a very famous violinist. And I just think that's so, so cool. So their their album together is called Across the Stars. It features hits called like Hedwig's theme from Harry Potter, Yoda's theme from The Empire Strikes Back. Also has deeper cuts from Cinderella Liberty and Dracula. And I just think that that's so, so fun. What's, what an incredible moment for him to be like, yeah, I could write a couple bars or... <laughs> But once again, Four. imagine going up to John Williams and being like, hello, sir, can I please get a 10 bar? Like, can you imagine? And then he just writes you a song. But also, I love the fact that she sends him Christmas cookies as a little, like, nudge. Like, this is the bravery that I aspire to have one day. That's, like, the best form of passive aggression. Yeah, Christmas cookies. If anyone needs something from me that I have not done, please send me cookies that are like, please do the thing, but also you can eat these cookies while you do it. <laughs> Fuel for the job you have not done. <laughs> we have a little bit of a rant for you. A little bit or a lot of bit of a rant. Listen, <laughs> Michelle and I have both lived in California and people in California like to hate things that are popular. <laughs> Actually, there are people everywhere who like to do that. But, like, there is, like, a general thing that when something becomes popular enough, people like to criticize it just for the sake of, like, they hate that it's so well-liked. Yeah. And listen, nothing's uncriticizable. But, like, when somebody legitimately tells me that they do not like John Williams' music, you're lying to me. (laughs) You're lying. You have the audacity to lie to my face. You are looking into my eyes and spewing lies. it's, It's atrocious. And I told Michelle, I was like, you know, actually... Like if you start if you're dating musicians, asking them how they feel about John Williams is a great litmus test for whether or not they're pretentious. <laughs> so true. Like I just don't understand how you could not like John Williams. Like I'm sorry, you couldn't figure out some music that you liked from his like ginormous discography. I'm so sorry. You didn't like any of it? I don't think so. Yeah. Seems like fake news to me. Yes, sounds fake. Because that's the thing. It doesn't have to be your favorite film composer. But you cannot tell me you do not like John Williams. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Jesse, you want to read off some of his uh, most notable works? Oh, you know, just a couple little films, like pretty much the entire Star Wars franchise, Jurassic Park, Jaws, Harry Potter, Superman, Indiana Jones, you know, multiple of those, E.T., Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, Memoirs of a Geisha, War of the Worlds, Minority Report, and most importantly, you know, the the box office uh, star vehicle for Pavarotti. Yes, Giorgio. Which, but that was such a shocking thing to find. We were pulling up a list because who can remember how many films that John Williams has written for? But oh my gosh, the fact that he wrote the mo- like the music for, for that movie, that's, uh, that's something. Bruh. Bruh. We have to do a whole mini so just on yes Giorgio which just so you know we will 100% at some point be doing that as our opera watch party feature (laughs) oh 1000% we're gonna have a watch party for it but like listen John Williams okay let's just let me play a little quick guessing game with you Michelle oh no okay how many (laughs) we'll go we'll go down the like how many academy awards do you think John Williams has been nominated for oh not one, but nominated. At least, gosh, 
35? 52. 52. I was actually going to guess 50, but I was like, you know what? I'm going to be conservative with my guess. 52, absolutely. Yeah, you don't want to overshoot it. Absolutely seems reasonable. Right? How many did he win? He won five. Five out of which 52? Which is still a ton. It is a ton. But yeah. But like, I'm sorry, he didn't win for all of the movies you just listed. <laughs> that also seems fake. Also seems fake news. Well, he's won five Academy Awards. He was nominated for six Emmys and won three, which makes sense because I don't remember him doing much work in television. Nominated for 25 Golden Globes, winning four, and was nominated for 71 Grammys, winning 25. The man has 25 Grammys just sitting around his house. 25 little golden children. Imagine walking into like John Williams like awards room because it's just like it's a bunch of awards and then it's just like an insane amount of Grammys. (laughs) Feels right. Yeah, he's got and just like don't feel too bad for him about the whole Academy Awards nominate thing because he holds like the record for the most Oscar nominations for a living person. I love that. And makes perfect sense. Like, the only person in history who's been nominated for more awards is Walt Disney. <laughs> love it. I love to see it. So what I'm saying is, once again, if you don't like John Williams, you're just factually <laughs> you, incorrect. You need to rethink. The evidence is against you. Your bad opinions. Yeah, of all the bad opinions, I would say, like, somebody telling me, like, I don't really like John Williams. That would probably be one of the, the worst opinions. That's... One of the worst harmless opinions somebody could hit me with where I would just be like dumbstruck. You've immediately told me you're a generally unpleasant person to be around and that you don't like fun movies. Yeah. Like we've like you've hit two strikes out of three. Yeah. I'm like, okay, great. Why am I talking to you again? But let's let's just let's spend a a little quick minute on on these films. Now, first of all, um, actually, Jesse, since I think you have a list pulled up, did he do the first Star Wars movie of the the three that just came out is that the Force Awakens? Yes, yes. Okay, you guys, I'm I'm pretty sure. So what they released this one video of I think it's John Williams conducting like the recording of the soundtrack with orchestra, like that got leaked after the film. I cried. (laughs) I literally (laughs) cried watching that. You guys don't even know what a big deal that is. I I I know. I literally cried because, like, I grew up with Star Wars. Star Wars is, like, something that my family and I share. Like, big Star Wars fan. And, like, the fact that they came out with more movies, like, aside was just, like, the best thing to happen. But, like, I didn't watch Star Wars until I was 21. It's fine. You came around. (laughs) Um, But, like, hearing that music again, like, as an adult, like, watching it happen with a live or recorded orchestra was so insane. And it's just, like... The music in Star Wars is so iconic. I mean, it's some of the most iconic music of, in film history. It really is. And, like, here's my thing. It's just, if you ask most people to hum a theme from one of these movies, they could. Mm-hmm. The general person on the street. It is the perfect, like, Schindler's List is so, like, the, the theme from Schindler's List is so touching to Itzhak Perlman mm-hmm. that he plays it at almost, he plays it at concerts all the time. He played at a concert I saw him in. Do you think you're better than Itzhak Perlman? <laughs> Do you think your opinion is better than Itzhak Perlman? Do you? Like, but I mean, think about how many times, like, people still make references to Jaws and the music from Jaws oh when something is, like, creeping. Or, like, 
impending. Like all of this music, I mean, like for our generation, I mean, look at the impact that Harry Potter had. Like that music is so iconic and same for Jurassic Park. Like, come on. Oh my gosh. And but yeah, like yeah, I could hu- I could hu- sing like I could hum so many of the themes from these. And people who don't even know who John Williams is know these themes. Like that's how iconic they are and they're all, you know, they're leitmotifs and everything. And I I hear some of you already in my head because I argue with people in my head all the time. <laughs> yeah. And I know some people have made the argument they're like, "Well, John Williams lifts things from classical music and uses like very similar themes to things that like Strauss wrote to what Wagner wrote." You know, obviously the th- the idea of a leitmotif, which is uh, you know, Wagner's big thing. Yeah, sorry, that's like all of classical music. <laughs> like, if you look at classical music, it's constantly people taking pieces and chunks of other music and reworking them. And back then, it was honestly considered a thing that was, like, flattering. A lot of times, people would do it in order to pay, like, homage to someone, uh, as an homage to someone who they admired. Even Wagner, you know, Wagner was married to, to Liszt's daughter. And when Liszt came to see one of his operas, he was like, you might recognize some of the music because he'd taken some of Liszt's music and put it in the opera. Like, that is the history of classical music. It's not something we consider kosher a lot of the time with pop music, but in terms of classical and film score and all of that, yeah. <laughs> 100%. And I think the other thing that I also love is, like, John Williams is just so established in his fields. I mean, he's, he's on top, right? That it's like, you know when you hear his scores in film they're real orchestra and i don't think that people really understand how much of film music and tv music nowadays is just computers it's it's it that that could be a whole episode on its own but it is actually very fascinating how some of these like you know thousands of dollars software can really sound quite convincing to an untrained ear and even to a trained ear with the right mixing but you know john williams does it with his full orchestra and that's also just something that brings such an a richness that is lacking in so much oh my god film and tv music so true you know it's that human touch it's it's the power of a conductor leading an orchestra interpreting a score like it's just It takes it to another level. I don't think anyone knows how to write for brass in film quite as well as John Williams. I'm actually very comfortable saying that. Because I think if you listen to a lot of film scores nowadays, they're very string heavy. And I understand like strings are considered such like an emotional part. But I don't think anyone really uses brass in their film scoring quite as well as... um, Maybe Hans Zimmer's got some stuff that where it's got some brass in it. But I, I truly think John Williams has mastered that. 100%. And like the the man has a range, right? The the soundscape that you have for Star Wars is obviously completely different than what you get in Harry Potter, which is completely different in tone from Indiana Jones to, you know, Memoirs of a Geisha to E.T. Like he can do it all. Yeah. And I think people people have this idea that like John Williams, you know, if you listen side by side with like Jurassic Park, maybe Indiana Jones, like there's something about them where they seem kind of similar. But You have to remember that when we list off these 10, 15 things, like these are just the ones we feel like most people would immediately know and recognize. Like a lot of people might not know that he wrote for Schindler's List, Mm -hmm. which is an entirely different style of film. There are tons and tons. Saving Private Ryan, the film score wouldn't take you, you know, mentally to Indiana Jones or Jaws or Jurassic Park or Star Wars. He has huge range. Yeah. But don't forget about Yes, Giorgio. (laughs) 
never forget about yesterday if we're Listen, talking about i'm not names. saying every movie he ever wrote for was a hit i'm just saying he wrote for a lot of hits yeah 100 percent. i also like the music in et when they're in the bike and they start flying makes me emotional he just knows how to really obviously he knows how to write an incredible theme Something that's really easy for an audience to hum back to, get stuck in your head. Like, he just has those earworms down pat. But he also, like, is just such a master of understanding emotion and tailoring those themes to fit whatever emotion you're supposed to be feeling. Like, he just... I never watch one of these big hits and think that the music is out of place or distracting. And that's really, like, the best things about these top film scores is that they're just a part of the scene. Yeah, You don't notice that there's music happening. You just feel that the music's happening. Well, and like, I think that's why it draws so many comparisons to like Wagner. And I'm not saying that they are in any way similar in a lot of things, but like the use of the leitmotif and the idea of like all of these pieces coming together to make the whole. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, I, I don't know that if I had heard the score for Indiana Jones before I had seen the movie that I would like the score as much as I do, but I like it because I like I like it with the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's the best kind of work to me is the kind of stuff that like if you took any one part out, it wouldn't work nearly as well. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes him such a brilliant composer. I love him. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So if you if you say you don't like John Williams, you're just wrong. Just be you're just factually incorrect. Be ready to fight. And in the I, you can call me any day. Like you can hit me up in my DMs. I will absolutely take you to task over this one. <laughs> I have no qualms. I will write a five-page essay about it. She's not joking. And if you have, listen, if you have somebody in your life who doesn't like John Williams and you're like, oh, I really wish I could send them this mini-sode, write to me. I will give it to you to send to them. <laughs> we will give you I a swear, free copy. I swear, I'll do it. <laughs> I truly will. We'll invite them to go on our IG live and we'll debate them live. <laughs> <laughs> we are that oh. confident in our love for John Williams. So with the whole John Williams thing squared away, I think that's going to be about it for us this week. We hope you guys enjoyed our rant and our They Performed With Who episode. If you like the style of our minisodes and you think they're a lot of fun, like you said, you can go on our Patreon and subscribe. The minisodes are available at the $2 level. It's a great deal. It's a lot of fun. And uh, we like to talk to you guys on there. We also like to talk to you guys on our Discord and our Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. You can find all of those at Opera Offstage. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.